0: listening to the iHeart Radio Talk Network. And this is the Evan Solomon show.
1: Hello Canada. I know my audio is probably not as great as it is. I'm working from home today broadcasting from the old home broadcast center as I'm doing the Evan Solomon show and Power Play and question period. Everything is being done from home. Why? Because two of my family members Are now positive for COVID, so I've got a double COVID sitch. So we got four of us in the house, and I've got two members of my family isolating in their rooms right now for COVID, and my wife and my daughter. My daughter's home from reading week for reading week, so it's going around. Uh, So far, my son and I all okay. Kind of a sign, though, that as we Lean into the escalation of the war, the latest crisis, the war in Ukraine, and we'll talk a lot about that today on the for the country. And we have talked about the protests here, about mandates. These are the lingering effects of the of the last crisis, two years plus of COVID, and and here we are in my little household as a microcosm uh, with COVID. Now everyone's okay, you know my you know it's like a bad flu. Um, so far so good. Why? We're all triple vaxxed. We're all triple vaxxed. Thank God. And I say that because, you know, I've had my brother and my sister in law and their family had COVID, they're triple vaxxed, they were quite sick still. But they pulled through, they're totally fine. And I just think, my God, what if we'd had this a year and a half ago? Before all, you know, remember, we were scrambling. We were all scrambling to get vaccines. My God, when are we going to get the vaccine? When are we going to get the vaccine? And we were pressing the Canadian government 18 months ago. Hurry it up. Roll it out. The provinces were slow on the rollout and everyone was panicking to get one. And then about 10% of the population has decided not to get one. And I'm not going to get into that and the vaccine mandates and all the polarization. But I will say a couple things as I kind of shifted my mind and my gears were mentally grinding in reverse as I kind of went back into COVID mode because i kind of forgotten about it, right? You know, the odd mask here and there, and we'd been through the trucker convoy protests, but I was deeply into looking at the current crisis in Ukraine and uh, the economic consequences and the price of gas and the um, horrible humanitarian situation and and will be on the ground in Ukraine today. But let me just give you a couple gut check moments, I guess. Reality check moments that I've had that maybe you've had as well. Number one, freedom. It's a word that we've been throwing around a lot here in Canada in the trucker protests and dictator word I heard a lot when I was at the trucker protests. Don't infringe on my freedom. Justin Trudeau is a dictator. Justin Trudeau's use of the Emergencies Act and the police crackdown on the protesters was like fascism. I got a a letter in the mail today that was delivered from the studio to me, from someone who, who wrote to me, Evan, as a Jew, you should be able to appreciate more than anyone that Justin Trudeau's targeting of the unvaccinated and the vaccine mandates are the precursor to fascism. And this is how it started in Nazi Germany. And you, more than anyone, should appreciate this. This writer wrote me. And I thought to myself, reality check. Freedom in Canada to protest was protected for three weeks when people were on Parliament Hill with their trucks, illegally parked, mind you, doing all sorts of illegal things. But they were essentially coddled and protected, their right to protest until they weren't, until the law finally said, you're breaking the law. And then there was a massive police show of force. There was, I was there at the front lines, but there was not a massive use of force, I've been to many riots and been around the world. That, that wasn't a huge use of force. It was a huge show of force. Now let's just compare the reality check to Ukraine. People here are worried about their freedom. Freedom is an important word and the infringement of civil liberties. But do you know what the infringement of freedom really looks like? Do you know what a dictator really looks like? Do you know what fascism really looks like? It looks like a country that invades a democratic, independent country. It looks like Russia and Vladimir Putin, who's been in power for 22 years, sham elections. It looks like Vladimir Putin, who takes 150,000 soldiers and invades your country and bombs civilians and bombs humanitarian corridors and forces a million and a half people to leave the country and slaughters people and destroys cities and infrastructure and children's hospitals. That's a dictator. That's an infringement on freedom. Do you know what a freedom fighter looks like? Looks like a Ukrainian who's on the front lines facing off against the Russian army. Do you know what bravery looks like? looks like Ukrainians and volunteers going to fight the Russian army. So I have a lot of time for peaceful protests. And if you want to protest vaccine mandates, I'm not going to look down on you. And I've heard a lot of people say, look, this is why the truckers protest was so ridiculous. People who are afraid of taking an itsy-bitsy needle and pretending that they're fighting fascism where the Ukrainians are literally not afraid to fight the Russian army with handmade weapons fighting for freedom. But I don't like to look down and condescend on people. People have the right to protest, and freedom comes in many forms. It's not always fighting the Russian army. And the people that want to fight and protest... A vaccine mandate have every right to do so. And their right should be protected. And their right was protected. Until they abused it and took over the Ambassador Bridge and tried to destroy the economy. Until they took over the capital city for three weeks. That's different. And if people don't want to take a vaccine, that's their right. I mean, there are consequences to your decision, but no one forced them. But what I want to just say is this. As I'm sitting here in COVID quarantine with my family, let's use our words a little more carefully. When we say Canada's never been more divided, hang on there. 90% of us chose vaccination. We have the most incredible country in the world. We have a healthcare system that's taking care of us. and We have healthcare workers who have worked tirelessly to save all lives, depending, doesn't matter what you believe, for over two years. You've had a government that you may not agree with provincially or federally or municipally, but they've all worked together despite their political differences to try to get you the medicines that you deserve, try to keep you safe and get you back to work. Not all the decisions were right. But let's be clear. We're not divided on some things like freedom. We're not divided on some things like humanity. Divisions look like what the Russians are doing pretending that they're trying to denazify a country led by a Jewish leader, a pretext for an illegal war and a horrific invasion. They're slaughtering people for one dictator's ambition, a dictator that is shutting down free media, imprisoning thousands of people in Russia. So let's just be clear, folks. Tone down the rhetoric a bit. We have healthy disagreements on really important things like vaccine mandates and taxes and governments and whether or not we should go to war. These are really important differences. But we aren't fighting a dictator here. There's no tyranny here. We have free elections. We have free media. We have an independent legal system. We should stop the hysterical, foam-at-the-mouth, pretend divisions calling each other enemies, calling leaders you dislike fascists because we are seeing reality slam you in the face when you do that. Look at Ukraine for some perspective on life. Feel how lucky we are. Let's disagree. But calm the hell down. Whatever you have here, you are luckier than anyone in Ukraine right now. And we're going to go to Ukraine next to prove it. So stay with us on The Evan Solomon Show.
0: As this story changes, we react. This is The Evan Solomon Show. Welcome back to the program. Uh, Justin Trudeau
1: is in the UK this morning. He had a press conference with the Prime Minister of the Netherlands and uh, Boris Johnson of the UK. He announced sanctions against 10 more Russians. But meantime, Russia and Ukraine are having, and I say this loosely, peace talks, the Russians have these sham peace talks that the Ukrainians must pragmatically join. And then the Russians use them as a pretext to continue bombing. They ask for um, almost uh, impossible um, asks on the table. You can't meet them. So they're sham theatrics. In the meantime, the killing continues. Christopher Curtis is an award-winning journalist who worked for the Montreal Gazette for nine years. He is now in Lviv, Ukraine, and he is the founder of... a. Really important, uh, new publication called The Rover, uh, an organization. So, uh, Christopher, first of all, great to have you on the program. I really appreciate it. Um, give me a sense of what it's like in Lviv right now and what you're hearing, sir.
2: Well, it's um, it's a city that, you know, uh, it's kind of like a city of contradictions, right? You know, it's, it's, it's uh, the country's at war. So there's tension. Uh, all, all of the big windows and the cathedrals are boarded up. There, there's the expectation that there could be a rocket strike. So there, there is a tension in the air, but, but life persists. You know, pe- people, I rode the bus in the metro today and, and, or the, the tramway and kind of tried to experience a little bit of life in the city. And um, it's really cosmopolitan. It's bursting with life. You know, there's kind of crazy drivers and cobblestone streets and, and you know, people just trying to live their lives and exist. Uh, and then at the same time, you go to the train station, uh, that, that, you know, gets, gets six or seven huge trains from, uh, from Kiev every day. And it, they're just full of people who are really desperate and, um, had to leave, uh, often the dad behind so he could stay and fight and, 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 or stay and help in, in whichever way he can. And so either you have the grandparents taking children, um, into Poland or you have, um, or you just have the the mom and the kids, and it's very hard to see. Um, it's it's inspiring in a way because there's so much determination and courage. But it's it's uh, I will it'll, it'll you know when you think about war, like and, and politics and whatever. Like to me, what it comes down to is um, these kids and their parents and uh, these people who just uh, all they want is to live uh, a peaceful, democratic existence.
1: It is true that. One of the things you see in any conflict zone, and, and I speak to Christopher Cutts, the award-winning journalist uh, now with the Rover. Curtis. Curtis. Yeah, sorry. Chris, did I say Christopher C- Curtis? Christopher Cutts is an old buddy of mine. Christopher Curtis, oh. award-winning. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. I'm sorry, Chris. Uh, Christopher That's Curtis in the Rover. Um, it's is just... It's humanity. I mean, people think, oh, these are faraway places, but they're just real people. They're families. they people want to go to school, and they have their same stuff that we've got. Oh, they've got a backache. They had a doctor's appointment. They got a school exam, yeah, yeah. and suddenly war is upon them. Give me a sense of the refugee crisis, because Lviv, as people will know, is kind of in, in, it's in western Ukraine, and this is where people are trying to get to to get out.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's, it's one of the only cities in Ukraine right now that's really stable they have steady access to electricity communications are really good. Still, uh, you know, running water, hot water. Um, so every hotel is pretty much booked. It's a, uh, it's, it's hard to get out of the city and, and across the border. Um, I think it's a one and a half day wait and people just kind of line up for a day and a half with like everything they have left in the world and their kids and, um, and what's happening at the, uh, at the train station is they have like a special room, uh, for really young kids. And like, you know, um, I have a five month old and it, you know, every time I hear one of these, uh, babies or children crying, cause some of them are even younger. Some of them were just born a couple of weeks ago or this week. And when you, when you hear that, it's like, it's devastating. It reminds me of my yeah. kid and, and, and how lucky we are to, to have what we have. But, but, um, there, there are a lot of people, um, a million so far have, have left. Uh, and, and you really get a sense of the scale of that when you start to walk around in in these kind of, um, this kind of welcoming center at, at the train station, but then there's also refugees at the soccer stadium. There's, there's, um, and, and it, it, it will only get worse. You know, there are more waves coming and, um, and if this bombardment continues, um, it's, it's, you know, I, I don't see how many, how people have a choice, you know, the, the people want, a lot of people want to stay and fight and the, the Ukrainians have like an incredible resolve, but um, it, 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 it's pretty desperate.
1: Give me a sense of, uh, first of all, there's a lot of people volunteering to go. There's, I think a million and a half people have left Christopher Curtis, but also many people are coming back to fight, uh, not only Ukrainians, but, people from different countries are are leaving, including many Canadians. Have you, have you talked, have you seen that sense of...
2: Well, I've seen, um, I've seen people from the diaspora, like, like, you know, Ukrainians who are living in France or Ukrainians who, who are living in Poland or, you know, Ukrainians who are living elsewhere, you know, I was, I was trying to get into the country yesterday and um, I, uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, soldiers or or volunteers, you know, that the uniform doesn't quite look professional, but they want, you know, they want to come back and and fight. And it's, um, and it's scary because, uh, you know, it, it, you get the sense that if, if a a major variable doesn't change here, it's just going to go on like this for years. I mean, they, the Ukrainians seem to have the advantage on the ground and the Russians are, are just kind of killing them from the sky. And, uh, every, everyone I talk to, you know, even if they, they don't have uh, much English, the thing they tell me is, uh, clear the skies, clear the skies. They want, yeah, they want, they, want you know, the no fly, fly zone. Yeah. 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 And, and, uh, NATO doesn't want to do it. And nobody, you know, nobody wants to, everyone seems to, to kind of be resolved that they will appease Russia, of whatever economic interests, or they don't want to be unpopular at home or, or whatever it is. But, um, uh, it's, it's, it it really it feels like they've dug in their heels and and a lot of people won't you know are not going to move and um further adding to the challenge it's it's uh it's the spring and it's everything's muddy so a lot of tanks are getting stuck russian tanks and that just means more killing and more dying and um it's it's these are no matter where you stand on these this conflict these are people's children and um these are you know these are human beings and and they have kids or or maybe they're just teenagers or whatever, but it's it's uh a lot of people are are, are getting involved in this fight and it's it's um it's getting it's it's pretty gruesome.
1: Meantime Russia these ceasefires are, are, are shams. The humanitarian corridors get keep getting uh bombed. Is there a sense of resolution here? and you, you mentioned by the way the the no-fly zone is a no-go zone for NATO um, because they don't yeah. want a direct conflict with with Russia. But um, it yeah. looks like the U.S. is going to send jets via Poland in. Um, what just just is there a sense well, of my, where I, this I, is going?
2: I, um, I have a contact who told me that's probably not going to happen. I mean, they they there was I, I think Poland ultimately doesn't want to pull the trigger because they might suffer the consequences. But uh, it, it, I think people are afraid that it's going to keep coming West. And, uh, when I was in Poland, that was, that was the fear as well, that like, he won't stop that he, he doesn't, you know, um, Putin historically just doesn't, doesn't really do diplomacy. He only respects strength. And, and that presents you with a pretty big challenge, which is, you know, you, you, do you want to go to war with a, a despot who, who seems to kind of have a, like, just no does not value human life. I, I, you know, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's really hard to see this getting better without a major variable changing. And that va- major variable changing might create an even bigger conflict. And yeah, I don't know. It, it just feels like a lot of, um, a lot of failed diplomacy and a lot of years of appeasing Vladimir Putin are, are kind of like the chickens are coming home to roost.
1: Christopher Curtis in the in the, from the Rover who is in, um, Lviv, right now in western Ukraine. Uh, sorry, I, I mean, I feel you're, you're you're so superb. I felt like you were my buddy, Christopher Cuts, but now you're Christopher Curtis. But <laughs> yeah. listen, man, oh, no I really—I ap- thought
2: for a se- I, for a second my feelings were hurt.
3: And she doesn't no, actually. Me. I thought no,
1: no. I thought to myself, make sure you don't call him Cuts. Hey, no, but can I just say thank you for your reporting and and your on the ground work. Uh, superb work. Your writing's great. Um, keep the stories coming. Really stay safe for thank your you. um, stay safe for your little one. And thank you so much. And and folks. Uh, Check out the rover as well. Um, Lots of great reporting going on. Uh, We're going to stay on the ground and we're going to find out. uh, We're going to go to Europe with Marika Walsh later and find out what Prime Minister Trudeau just promised.
0: Talking to the newsmakers every day. The conversation continues with Evan Solomon. Welcome back to the uh, program
1: today. What more can be done to stop Russia? A no-fly zone is a no-go zone for the West. They don't want to engage Russia. But today, uh, Justin Trudeau flew to England, to the United Kingdom, and he spoke to U.K. Prime Minister Justin or, uh, Boris Johnson and the Netherlands Prime Minister, Mr. Rutte, and he announced new sanctions. Listen to what he said.
4: This includes former and current senior government officials, oligarchs, and supporters of Russian leadership. These sanctions put increased pressure on Russia's leadership, including on Putin's inner circle.
1: Okay, so 10 more Russian political and business leaders identified. By the way, they were identified by the jailed and remarkable Russian opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, who said these are the folks you should target. He also says there's going to be, I guess, some new way to try to push back Russia. Here's what
4: he said. The focus is on the people of Ukraine and our solidarity with Ukraine, are pushing back against uh, the illegal uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, and uh, standing up for democracies around the world.
1: Marika Walsh, political reporter with the Globe and Mail's Ottawa Bureau, is in London. She just got back from Latvia as well. Uh, Marika, good to have you here. What an extraordinary journey you've been on. Uh, I guess the big questions here today after this announcement is, is this enough? What was your sense of today?
5: My sense, Evan, is that so far the, the prime minister's office, the prime minister does not yet appear to be announcing A ton of new moves. The sanctions listed for the Russians that they announced today were actually also announced yesterday. But the prime minister says this is about sort of building a coalition, showing solidarity for Ukraine. What was interesting to me is how direct the Dutch prime minister, Mark Rutte was in acknowledging that the sanctions so far, though, have not done the intended thing of ending the war, of forcing Putin to back away. And so clearly, if that is the issue, then much more needs to be done by the West to try and force that.
1: What's, I mean, these are 10 more people. I, I mean, I, I guess I'm not 100 percent sure what, what that's going to do. Did, was there any talk about more lethal weapons? I mean, the Ukrainians, I don't want to undersell the sanctions. They have been swift and enormous from the Western countries, and they have had a devastating mm-hmm. effect on the Russian economy. So, But it's clearly mm-hmm. not enough. The, the Ukrainians say we need that, plus weapons, plus a no-fly zone. Any any comments on that today, Marika Walsh? Uh,
5: very, very little on that, and we actually haven't yet gotten a press release from the Prime Minister's office to very clearly explain what is and isn't being done right now. But we do, for example, I asked the Prime Minister, the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, and also Boris Johnson, about Canada's defense spending, right? Because depending on how much we spend on defense depends on then or informs how available our military is to actually respond to Ukraine, to send weapons to Ukraine. And Boris Johnson said he wouldn't speak directly to Canada's spending, which is well below the UK's, but that the status quo can't stay the same. The prime minister said something different. He said the context suggesting, I think, the, the war in Ukraine changes things. And so I think that will be something to look for from a Canadian context of whether this really lights a fire under the federal government to spend more of the money that they have already committed to spend on defense to buy more up-to-date weapons and, and to really have more of an arsenal available to deal with situations like this.
1: Speaking of Marika Walsh of The Globe and Mail, she's in London and she's traveling with the Prime Minister. She just got back from Latvia. That question, Marika Walsh, that you raise about defense spending. Of course, the NATO commitment is 2% of your GDP. We're at about 1.2, 1.3%. Uh, the, the the Brits are about two point, what 2.6. They're, they're above it. But the bottom line is Canada, this has highlighted the fact that this has never been a priority. Even the money we've promised Canada hasn't spent. And and this is going to be the next big political challenge. We're trying to arm the Ukrainians, but we just don't have that much to give.
5: That's absolutely right, Evan. And, and just a quick note, um, I was in Estonia. I'm heading to Latvia. So fair that you can't keep track of me because I keep hopping around. But absolutely, I spoke with David Perry, um, who's a defense expert in Ottawa, who said that's exactly it, that we what we have to offer, for example, in fighter jets are, are more than four decades old. Well, that's going to be less effective than a newer system at, at the goal of, of getting rid of um, – of, you know, the, the Russian army in Ukraine, frankly. And so, yeah, it is actually a challenge. We didn't hear new announcements in military commitments from the federal government today. Today was really focused, according to Boris Johnson and the prime minister, on this humanitarian coalition that they want to build to give support to Ukrainians, although they were also light on specifics on what exactly that would look like but they they say that it will be sustained and long-term. Another issue that came up is on these sanctions that you mentioned is how Europe will divorce itself from Russian oil. They acknowledge today that that will take a long time. Evan, it's a huge issue in Europe that we in Canada don't have to deal with as much. But essentially, being dependent on Russian oil also makes it more difficult to really put the vice around Vladimir Putin, as Boris Johnson today
1: said, they want to do. Yeah, speaking of Marika Walsh. Okay, so you were in Estonia, of course, which is just... I just want people to get the sense of the geography because these are important places. Estonia, which is just north of Latvia, folks. And and Mm -hmm. the reason why these are important is both of those border on... Russia, as you know, and yeah. in Latvia, where Marika and the Prime Minister will be headed, that is where Operation Reassurance happens. That's the biggest Canadian military operation. And Canada first went there to be essentially a tripwire. That's actually the term they use in the, in the event that the Russians cross the border into Latvia and or uh, they would uh, in Estonia and, and other places like uh, Lithuania there. That, that's the, those are the, the concerns. Why is Latvia, you're heading there, why is that so important?
5: Well, we're going to Latvia because that's where Canada's troops that are part of this NATO effort to deter Russia and to show that NATO is committed to this eastern flank of the alliance, that we are actually committed to defending it. And so Canada has a big group of troops in Latvia. The UK has a big group of troops in Estonia. Boris Johnson was there while I was there last week. And so Canada is now going to Latvia, I think, as part of... uh, a rallying the troops, part of a photo op and a symbolic show of political commitment and will in this issue. But certainly being in Estonia, people there were nervous, were anxious about what this war means and whether it does mean they're next. They feel much more confident, much more secure because Estonia, Mm -hmm. unlike Ukraine, is in NATO, so it does have that protection from militaries like the United States. But they still know how close they are to Russia Mm -hmm. and they know how um, unpredictable and uncertain their neighbor
1: is yeah that that by the way estonia latvia they are part of nato that's article five partnerships An attack on one is an attack on all in the last minute i've got with you uh marika walsh from the globe and mail traveling with the prime minister in london marika uh, the prime minister hinted that more sanctions are coming do you have any sense of what else is coming
5: No, we don't. We know, though, where they're focused, right? We know that they're focused on the humanitarian response, ensuring their support for the refugees, for the people fleeing Ukraine. So That's one pillar. The next pillar is this military response, sending in the weapons, but not the people to for the Ukrainian army to use. So NATO will not actually directly be involved, but they're going to give equipment. We haven't heard new announcements on that, but that's one of the areas they look at. And then, of course, there's the economic sanctions that you mentioned. So the prime minister referenced this list of 10 new Russian officials and oligarchs who will be sanctioned. We're still waiting for details on that, how significant they are. But I think you will expect to see, at least the prime minister's office, promise that there will be sort of a rollout of news this week on the next steps Canada's taking. And we know they've said they're taking more steps. It's not a question of whether they will. It's a question of what they will do. Mm.
1: Marika Walsh with the uh, PM on on a lot of journeys from Estonia to uh, the United Kingdom, to London, uh, to Latvia, and I imagine maybe Poland, where the prime minister is going. Thanks, Marika. Take care. Thanks, Evan. That's Marika Walsh from the Globe. I will say this. It is, look, there's not, is there enough being done? No. Russia's got to be stopped. Do we know that? Yes. This is a humanitarian crisis. This is a brutal war. But, I have never seen the West act like this. If the strategic goal of the Russians for the last 70 years has been to drive a wedge through NATO, and they had before, they are now failing. I have never seen NATO allies and the West act in coordination as quickly in a generation. But coming up next, one of Vladimir's great opponents, Gary Kasparov, the chess champion, joins us. Wait till you hear this.
0: When important decisions are made, we report. Here's Evan Solomon. Welcome back to the program. Who is Vladimir Putin?
1: And why is the war there going so badly for him and yet still so dangerous? And where is he going to escalate? Understanding Putin's motivation is critical. And that's why I wanted to talk to Gary Kasparov and General Tom Lawson. I think these are two of the smartest people you know. Here's why. Garry Kasparov is a Russian grand master of chess. Do you remember him? Maybe one of the greatest chess players of all time. He also has been a longtime opponent of Vladimir Putin. He's the chairman of a huge human rights organization. He wrote the incredible book, Winter is Coming, How to Stop Vladimir Putin and Other Dictators. This guy knows Putin. He's fought Putin and he's been a champion of human rights for years. Putin hates him. And I also wanted to speak to the former chief of the defense staff, General Tom Lawson. Why? Because he's an Air Force man. And this is about the no-fly zone. This guy knows, as the former chief of the defense staff, knows his Russian counterparts and knows what it is to battle in the air. Because there's a lot of concern about should we have a no-fly zone or should we not? So these are two people that understand Putin, the goals, and then the military side. So I brought them on CTV's question, but I think it's worth listening to them because they're smart. And I first asked Gary Kasparov or Kasparov in America is Kasparov and Russia is Kasparov. But I asked him, what is his assessment of Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine, how it's going, and finally, what his goal might be?
6: It's definitely not going according to his original plan. I think he expected to uh, destroy Ukrainian army within two or three days, to enter Kiev, to install puppet government, and then, as he did many times in the past, you know, back to negotiating table with the free world from the position of strength. This plan miserably failed uh, due to heroic resistance of Ukrainians. And also he discovered that even in the Russian-speaking regions of Ukraine, there is almost zero cooperation from local population. So Russian army stumbled. But inability to win the the, the, the battle, uh, um, the battlefield, so uh, translated into the um, attacks on civilians. That's what Putin did many times in the past. We can remember Grozny in Chechnya 20 years ago, or Aleppo in Syria. And now we are witnessing um, war crimes on an industrial scale. And I think Putin's goal now is to not just to terrorize ukrainians and to bombard them into submission but also sending message to the free world stay away i have nukes and i can do whatever i want i can kill people uh uh in the daylight uh you can watch it on tv but you are you are incapable of stopping me
1: okay testing nato let me go to you general tom lawson President Zelensky and the Ukrainians are demanding a no-fly zone. NATO says no, they want a no-fly zone for humanitarian corridors. You're a former Air Force person. A lot, of, a, a lot of folks say without that, Vladimir Putin, no matter how badly it's going now, will continue. What's your assessment about a no-fly zone and the need for that, sir?
4: Well, I think we should make no mistake about our understanding of what a no-fly zone represents. It does represent going to war with Russia. As soon as Western aircraft and air defense systems are shooting down Russian aviators, you're at war with Russia. So it's not a step anything like sanctions. Uh, If we step forward, uh, then we should step forward with that. Uh, And we should uh, step forward making it clear Uh, that this is about to happen and give uh, Putin time to make a decision on whether or not that changes the uh, horrific tactics, which are really war crimes uh, now.
1: Okay, so that doesn't happen, Mr. Kasparov. Let let me go back to you. Um, There's negotiations going on. What is the way out here? Uh, Some are saying Putin, there is no way out for him. Some are saying he's facing an internal battle within Russia, even though he's cracking down on the media there to to run his propaganda war. What's your assessment of internally the support in Russia? And what is a possible way out of this, if there is one, uh, from this war?
6: He is no longer cracking on independent media in Russia. It's gone. It's over. Russia today is a full-blown totalitarian state, fascist dictatorship with one man in charge. So there's no opposition. Uh, there are many brave people in the streets protesting, but now to protest against war in Russia you could end up three years in jail. And uh, spreading the truth about, about war in Ukraine and Russian losses could, could, could earn you 15 years in jail. So forget about the opposition inside, inside the country. And there is no way out. As long as Putin is in power, there, is, there will be no peace. Uh, it's not a game of chess where you can win, lose, or it could be a tie. There is no tie in this war. Putin made clear his intentions. For many years, by the way, he kept repeating Ukraine was not a real state, and he was just waiting for the moment to destroy its sovereignty. I think that's only, the only way for us to get out of this crisis and to save our planet is to defeat Putin's troops in in Ukraine on the, uh, in, the in the in the field, and also to um, uh, blockade Russia technologically, financially, uh, um, politically, economically, and to make sure that. Russian population will revolt, and Putin's police, army, and propaganda machines will be broken due to the lack of funds.
1: That is not a short process, General Lawson. From a, again, give me your military assessment. Uh, anti-tank weapons are going in, anti-aircraft uh, weapons are going in, but if you listen to Garry Kasparov and, and others, this is a long fight militarily. What else does the West need to provide to Ukraine? Does it need to provide jets?
4: Well, that is, of course, under discussion, uh, some discussion of the Americans providing probably F-16s to Poland to allow them to continue with their air defenses with the F-16s they have and the ones they would get from the United States, allow them to give up probably their fulcrums, uh, which is an aircraft uh, that the Ukrainians fly. Uh, and the provision of materiel, as has been going on for recent months uh, and extended by something like that, would be uh, a, a reasonable way ahead that also keeps NATO on this side of going to war with Russia. But I, I think more uh, importantly, um, R- NATO under President Biden made it clear before the invasion started uh, to Putin uh, that they would not engage militarily on Ukrainian soil Um Uh, However, there would be sanctions uh, for the president uh, to deal with in Russia. But that was made on the assumption that the Russian military tactics would follow the uh, laws of war. As Mr. Kasparov has uh, just said, uh, that's not the case. Uh, Western targeting uh, always takes into consideration the value of the target, but also the potential for collateral damage, including, including civilian deaths. That doesn't seem to be part of the calculus in the Russian uh, planning uh, for this campaign and the execution of the campaign. So that assumption was a big one.
1: That is General Tom Lawson and uh, Gary Kasparov, the former chess champion human rights activist and anti-Putin um, fighter. So that gives you some perspective. Now, I'm going to bring on someone live next that Vladimir Putin has targeted to try to arrest and kill. Vladimir Putin's forces killed his partner, Sergei Magnitsky. You may have heard about Sergei Magnitsky because when you hear about sanctions against Russia, people say these are Magnitsky-style sanctions. Well, the name Magnitsky comes from Sergei Magnitsky. He was the partner of Bill Browder. They were doing business in Russia. Br- Browder was the founder, founder of Hermitage Capital Management, and after his partner was arrested and murdered, Browder became a global fighter, against vladimir putin and putin has since targeted him bill's going to join us so you're going to hear from bill browder next all the sanctions you're seeing now is the culmination of years of work of bill browder on behalf of his partner sergey magnitsky Uh, so bill browder's on the other side of the break he's live with us you don't want to miss that
0: to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show.
1: Vladimir Putin is attacked illegally and brutally Ukraine. It is day 12 of the war. The brutality continues. He's bombing humanitarian corridors. The Ukrainians are putting up a heroic fight, but they want a no-fly zone. That is a no-go zone for NATO. But the West has instituted the most severe and quick fleet of sanctions that I've ever seen. Like, I that understands understand sanctions better than anybody, and maybe Vladimir Putin better than anyone, is Bill Browder. Now, I've told you about Bill. He's been on our show many times. Bill Browder is the founder and CEO of Hermitage Capital Management, which was the largest investment advisor and foreign investment fund in Russia until 2005. His partner, Sergei Magnitsky, was jailed and murdered by Vladimir Putin. He's been denied entry there, declared a threat to national security. Uh, he published a book called Red Notice, a true story of high finance murder and one man's fight for justice, because and there, was an, in, there is an Interpol Red Notice out on him by Putin. He's got a new book out called Freezing Order, a true story of Russian order money laundering, murder, and surviving Putin's wrath. But, but Bill Browder joins me now. Bill, um, first of all, always good to connect um, what, what do you make now? Here we are on day 12. Where is Russia? The the ruble is collapsing. Their economy is under threat. The oil prices are spiking. Give me your
7: assessment. Well, uh, instead of giving you uh, my assessment, I'll give you the assessment of one of the Russian's biggest oligarchs who was on the record a couple of days ago saying that this is three times worse than 2008. That was the global financial crisis. And it's going to take three years to recover from. That was his assessment. And these are the guys who usually put on a brave face. So it's probably 10 times worse than 2008. In other words, it's an absolute catastrophe for, for the Russian economy. I mean, it's, it's just truly devastating. They, they, no more, they, they, the Russian people can no longer use credit cards. They can't get hard currency out of the bank. The ruble has collapsed. Prices are going up. Um, they can't fly anywhere. the, the Aeroflot has been grounded. Um, they they uh, can't can't get any on foreign flights because uh, the airspace is closed. It is just an absolute chokehold by the West, uh, and, and of course the oligarchs are now being chased. Their, their yachts are being seized all over the Mediterranean. It's it's really something. I, I mean, it makes my head spin because I've spent the last ten years trying to get foreign governments to get tough on Putin, and they've been unwilling to do anything. I mean that, that's not entirely true. I'm exaggerating a little bit. They've done something, but but next to this, it's almost
1: this is, almost, a, this, is extra, this is literally what you've been asking for. It's happening
7: in the span of twelve days. Exactly, and 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 it deserves to happen, and more deserves to happen based on what Putin is doing. I mean, he's, it, I mean, just it, you know, we, we we you know, we the entire world was chasing Osama bin Laden, um, and he he you know he set off you know bombs here, there, and and other places. But what Putin is doing. Is, is terrorism in the same vein? I mean, it's just absolute terrorism against people who have not, who've done nothing. All they've done is wanted to live a peaceful life. And he's setting off, he's shelling, bombing, killing, maiming people who don't, who, uh, these buildings are being, it's just unbelievable.
1: Speaking to Bill Browder, founder and CEO of Hermitage Capital, but author of Red Notice and, and, and a prime target of Vladimir Putin. Bill, my concern is that as Russia gets isolated, the media blackout there, the suppression of any independent media, the arrest, as I just spoke to Gary Kasparov, the former chess champion and human rights champion, he was just on the program, um, that there is a, a heavy suppression of any knowledge of what's really going on in Russia, that Putin turns this into an attack on the West, doesn't back down. And in fact, lashes out, things get worse. What's your sense of internally what's going on?
7: Internally, they've completely changed the narrative. They're, 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 internally, they're saying that there's, they're telling people there's no war going on. We have a small operation to um, uh, get rid of Nazis and as a human rights operation to get rid of Nazis and, and other bad actors in Ukraine. And it's really interesting because uh, a lot of Russians and Ukrainians are all intermixed and intermarried and interfamilied and so on. And you get these people in Ukraine calling their relatives in Russia and the Russians, the Russians saying, that's just not true. It's not happening. We've seen the news. It's just not true. This is fake news. And, and because of that, you, you get a much harder situation in terms of, you know, I mean, if the Russians knew that they were indiscriminately killing their Ukrainian brothers and sisters, they wouldn't support them. And they also wouldn't support the fact that more than 10,000 soldiers have been killed in, the, in 11 days. But we see it's, these it's, protests, it's Bill.
1: Like we see protests in Saint Petersburg that are pretty
7: remarkable, and and those people are incredibly brave because uh, you, you you protest, you get arrested, and and you know worse stuff is going to happen, and so even with all the the danger and repression, people are protesting, um, and people are also start starting to protest because prices are going up. People don't like to pay more for food when when they're already on the poverty line to start out with, and so. This is not going well for Vladimir Putin. It's not going well economically, and it's not going well militarily. This is They have this entire 40-mile convoy that's basically stuck, in, literally stuck in the mud and, um, uh, and, and being massacred on the front and the end of the convoy, and they can't even get it in or out. And so it's, it's really it's kind of a disaster for Vladimir Putin. He, he wanted to project this power to the world, and all of a sudden he's looking incompetent both economically and, and militarily.
1: So where does he go from here, speaking to Bill Browder?
7: Well, where he goes from here is Putin is a guy who absolutely can't admit a mistake. He can't go into reverse. He doesn't negotiate. And so all he can do is escalate. And that's all I saw in my 10-year conflict with him was just insane, irrational escalation. And uh, and so I, I can imagine that, that the uh, the human rights atrocities are just going to get worse and worse in Ukraine. And everyone's talking about no-fly zones. Uh, no-no-fly zones, I, I think that the the conversation is going to change in the next few weeks as we see these terrible things unfolding before our eyes. We're going to say, you know, it's it's literally going to be a genocide of the Ukrainian people by, by Russian military, and we're going to have to do something.
1: You think that may change? That's interesting, because that, of course, br- brings this much wider than just a, a war in Ukraine. Internally, is there any danger for Putin or is he so entrenched that, you know, people keep saying, well, the Russian people are going to turn on him and any chance
7: of that? Well, in my opinion, he's just everyone is are so, everyone's so scared of him that there's no way that there's going to be a palace coup because everyone's just terrified of him. And um, and the people are not going to rise up because there's nobody to organize them and, and right. picking them off one by one. And so, at least in the short term, I don't see that happening. In the medium term, anything can happen. I mean, this is this is just uncharted territory. Nobody could have ever imagined that he would, you know, create a, a economic depression. We're not even talking about a recession here. It's going to be a depression. Um, and and I mean, the, the way that people's lives are changing in Russia, you know, that no more no more credit cards, no more Netflix, no more Apple phones, no more any what, no more Christian Dior, no more anything. You know what is that going to? How is that going to affect people's lives? It's, it's effectively going back to the Soviet Union uh, for people, and that and that wasn't the deal that they signed up for with Vladimir Putin. People are looking at
1: the uh, list now. We've just got the list of, of ten Russians that Prime Minister Trudeau announced were new new sanctions. But what else, from a sanction point of view, should there be, Bill Browder?
7: Well, in my mind, the um, the list, <clears throat> the sanctions list, should include the top one hundred oligarchs. Why? not because we expect these people to overthrow um, uh, Putin, but, but the reason we want to sanction them is because they hold Putin's money and we're trying to effectively economically decapitate him. And to do that, we, we need to, to, to freeze all of his assets, both abroad um, and internally. And we've done the central bank reserves, and we need to make sure that he doesn't have as- access to all this money abroad that's held by the oligarchs. And so we need to sanction 100 of them, not, not you know, a dozen or two dozen.
1: Bill Browder, uh, my God, can you imagine 10 years? You and I have been discussing this. You've been working on this, and and you've seen more things happen in the last two weeks. But there's a long and tragically bloody road ahead. Um, I'm looking forward to your new book coming out, Freezing Order. I always appreciate you joining me on radio and television. Bill Browder, thank you, sir. Thank you. That's Bill Browder. Um, He is a remarkable guy. Now, one thing that Bill's done is he said, well, let's rack up the sanctions. But there's been a real question. How do you enforce the sanctions? Well, you enforcement is hard. And it turns out Canada may not have the tools. In other words, you can set speed limits, but if you're not policing the road, does anyone care? Who's policing the road? How does Canada actually enforce those sanctions? We're going to dig into that because enforcing sanctions makes the symbols real and reality is what matters that's next
0: helping you through these unique times this is the evan solomon show
1: welcome back to the program okay sanctions 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 everyone's saying we need more sanctions and we just talked to bill browder the architect of many of these Magnitsky-style sanctions, after his um, dear friend and lawyer Sergei Magnitsky was executed by the Russians, imprisoned and killed, and new sanctions again today—ten new sanctions—and then, and I read uh, some some work by our good friend Stephanie Carvin, the former national security analyst and associate professor now at the International Relations at Carleton University, and the author of the book "Stand on Guard: Reassessing Canada's National Security." who said, well, it's great to have sanctions, but do we have the capacity to enforce them? If you're driving on a road that says the speed limit is 100, but you know there's no police ever, nobody ever enforces it, maybe you'll speed. And so let's bring on uh, Stephanie Carvin uh, to, to explain what are our capacity to enforce this. Um, all right, Carvin, I took the bait. Um, <laughs> You My tweeted teeth out went out again yes well that's okay i mean listen i i think we got to listen to smart people and we try to anyway and uh and you're one of them and and i think this is an important discussion enforcement is a critical component of any of anything uh, what are canada's limits when it
8: comes to enforcing uh, sanctions so Quite a bit, actually. I mean, this isn't really a problem of law. I mean, you're on with Bill Browder. I mean, he's pushed so hard for countries to develop these laws. And for the most part, you know, we don't have huge gaps in our legal framework. There's, there's one possible exception I can talk about in a bit, but, um, we really don't, the thing we really seem to lack is, is, is two things. First of all, a system from which we can take intelligence from national security agencies, and turn that into court-ready evidence, right? We call that, if you want to get super nerdy, we call that the intelligence to evidence problem, whereby we don't want to give up our, our sources and our methods, or we don't want to take allied intelligence and just throw it on our court system, um, because it could give away various um, uh, you know, techniques and things like this. Uh, but that then means that we know that there's a number of people out there who are doing these things, but we can't actually bring that evidence to court. We have no way of saying how the government actually knows these things. So we need proced- better procedures to take intelligence and turn it into things that we can actually use to prosecute people. So that's the first thing the second thing is really just a lack of institutional knowledge um we don't really you know we have people at, at global affairs that are in the sanctions coordination units uh they have they know who these groups are that or individuals are who are, are doing um or have money or these kinds of things but they don't necessarily have the criminal law expertise um if you look at CBSA or uh, RCMP they have criminal law expertise but do they actually have the enforcement expertise? Uh, so a good example of this is, you know, let's say I'm trying to export, um, um, I'm going to say cupcakes to, to Russia, um, and, you know, which would be, a, a, a you know, a violation of sanctions right now. And- it would be.
1: Can I just say, folks, I just want to remind people that Carvin, Stephanie Carvin, who you're listening to, uh, is among many things, not only an expert in national security, but makes great cupcakes, so she could be exporting those. Go ahead.
8: I, I'm, just, I'm, not, I'm not confirming or denying. But let's say I did. Um, but in order to do that, instead of shipping it straight to Russia, I ship it to a place like D- Dubai, a trans-shipping point, right? Do the CBSA and RCMP have the people on the ground, the ability to actually find out if I'm somehow trying to evade Canadian sanctions by going through another point? And and we don't really have that. Um, we don't really, we haven't really cultivated the expertise in investigating financial uh, crime. It, it, it's a huge problem. I mean, we've seen it out in B.C. with the casinos, right? There was a whole lot of concern about money laundering in B.C. casinos. All those cases fell apart because they weren't investigated properly. Uh, we've had, a, you know, we've had sanctions legislations on the books really since 1992. We've only prosecuted one case ever one case Um, one case successfully and yeah i mean so this is just it like we can have all the laws we want but unless we develop the institutional capacity at cbsa at rcmp and global affairs canada uh by putting people on training experts and and taking this stuff seriously, it's just really creating a, a paper tiger. We're not okay. We're not so so creating.
1: so when you see all these sanctions, what does that tell you? Does, is this a paper tiger? Is this look at this is symbolic? And, and you know if someone's trying to park their yacht here like they're doing in like Mallorca, we'll snap it up. But but really, we don't have either the the, the capacity or the expertise to really uh, conduct, prosecute, and convict based on these.
8: Yeah, and what's even worse is that every once in a while you will hear of a Canadian prosecuted for sanctions, but probably because they're being prosecuted in the United States. Right? So why we are we missing?
1: Why did we let this go lapse? Like we've had look at Canada's known for money laundering problems, as you know that.
5: Yep. Organized absolutely. crime, as you
1: talked about very much, in, in British Columbia and and across the country, why don't we have this capacity, Stephanie Carvin? Um, honestly,
8: I don't know. My guess is that it doesn't get voted um it's not something that politicians focus on because they're not you know it's not a tax cut it's not um a spending program it's not you know uh, governments like to, to get money and, and this isn't that right it's largely an investment in things that, you know, A, is probably not going to produce results for five to 10 years because you have to build up that capacity and expertise. But then secondly, is, is you know, most people don't really pay attention to these issues. So it's not a vote getter. And this is so true on so many national security issues. I mean, we have so many questions that have to be uh, addressed. and But we don't, Um, have a lot of people who are interested in these questions. We don't seem to care. I think people think that, oh, Canada is a good, outstanding citizen. And they trust politicians. If they say that they're putting these sanctions in place, Canadians automatically think, oh, well, we must be able to enforce them. But that's not the case. And so, you know, one of the things that myself and and some of my uh, colleagues have been pushing for for a long time is much more investment in the capacity to actually investigate these crimes and and to you know really develop that expertise because that's not only going to benefit us it's going to benefit uh, countries around the world.
1: Just quickly, well, I've got you, Stephanie Carvin. Interesting debate about Canada not funding its military enough. We're on this is a, just a different note. Two percent of GDP. Um, we're not close to it. We're about one point three. Um, are we? Have we? Has the the war in Ukraine exposed the the kind of, um, irresponsible lapse of investment in our, in our military?
8: So two thoughts on that. One is, um, yeah, as other States are now, you know, there was only really about four countries that were hitting that 2% threshold prior to this. And now a bunch of countries in Europe have announced that they are going to hit that 2% threshold. So it's going to be harder for us to hide behind that.
4: exactly.
8: Yeah. So I think that that's one thing. Um, The second thing is, though, what something I think is important is, is the thing I was just talking about is, yeah, I mean, I've seen a lot of talk now about the military side of this, but, you know, an immediate thing that we could do to really help. Like, I mean, I would love to see people call for the institutional capacity building in our uh, foreign affairs as well, in terms of uh, rebuilding our national security institutions, like being able to do something about sanctions. Um, Do we need foreign intelligence? So to me, it's not just about the military guns and bombs and things like that. That's a huge part of that. But I think that there's other things that we could be doing as well. And I'd like to see more calls for that. So yeah. that's kind of a dodge on your question, but... Uh, no, it's, it's not,
1: because yeah. I, I, I keep saying on this program, cost of democracy is going to be added to the new budget line item. What are the costs of democracy? And, and we've been lucky enough that we've been allowed our cost of democracy not to include the insurance payment of defense. I think now reality has caught up with that. Uh, Stephanie Carvin, former national security analyst, now at, uh, associate professor at Carleton University. Great to have you on the program, and uh, I love your cupcakes analogy. Well done.
8: <laughs> Thank you so much, and I agree entirely with your point.
1: Steph Carvin, uh, very smart, and, and, and she's not wrong, and I want, I want you to really appreciate what Steph just said. If you really want to invest in, in defense, it's not just the, the, the sharp end of the stick, It's the foreign policy, the information gathering that turns into intelligence. And as she talked about, the ability to actually enforce sanctions. It is a deep bench you need, and it is an expensive bench. And and I want to talk about that next. And I'm going to ask you, given this situation in the world, do you think Canada needs to increase its spending on defense? there's inf- like we're in a major inflation crisis. We have a health care crisis. We've all complained about that. But should we now be spending precious dollars on increasing our defense budget? One eight five five six three three ten ten or 71010. Where to spend our money next.
0: From coast to coast to coast, the newsmakers talk here. This is the, to the Evan Solomon Show.
1: <laughs> Welcome back to the program. Your turn. Now, I started the program today saying that two of my family members have COVID. So you got the COVID crisis during the, the lingering last stages of it, we hope. And I, I really genuinely hope it is, by the way. But... You remember during the COVID crisis that one of the big concerns we had was, you know, we just don't have enough beds. We got to invest in our healthcare system. And the provinces are asking for 28 or $38 billion more. Okay. Because the reason we had so many lockdowns is we just don't have any slack in the system. So, okay, should we invest more in healthcare? And then we racked up some of the biggest deficits we've ever seen. The biggest deficits supporting businesses and people. So now we've got, you know, $320 billion of deficit plus. And then people say, well, we've got to invest in other things. And then the war starts. And now we're like, OK, hang on. Our military, we got to invest in our military. And so I'm going to ask you now, because we've got inflation. You're, you're paying more now than you've paid in 15 years to fill up your car at the pump because of the oil crisis and, and what's going on in Russia. So you're paying inflation's high. House prices are high, deficits are high, healthcare needs investment. And now people are saying, well, we need to invest more in the military because the cost of democracy is high. And Germany is investing more, and the UK is investing more, and Canada is not pulling its weight. Let's just be clear. We're not investing close to what we promised, which is 2%. So 1 855 or 71010. Given the new security reality in the world, should Canada be investing more in national defense, in our foreign affairs, in enforcing sanctions, in defending the Arctic? Nick in Montreal. Okay, Nick, do I have you, buddy? Yeah. Okay, go yeah, for it.
3: Yeah, okay. Uh, I have a couple of points to say here. First of all, no, I don't think so. We're like, we have. Uh, uh, NORAD with the uh, United States. I, there's nothing. Ever, uh, we don't, we're not in Europe. And I understand what Germany is doing because, you know, there could be a war in Europe or whatever. You have to really defend yourself with these countries. But the other thing is, uh, the other point I want to say is, because I was listening to your radio station the last half hour, and I was listening to your experts there. You know, like, my girlfriend uh, comes from Ukraine, and they had to leave Ukraine. That's why you have a lot of like, uh, Ukrainians who moved to Canada. It's because the country is corrupt. It's you don't you you don't know really what's happening there. It's so corrupt there, and Biden has either all his corruption forty years in Ukraine, and everything is controlled by one person. And I'll tell you that person. But what I fear the most, Evan, is that China might take over uh, Taiwan. But, but Nick, before you happens.
1: get there, I know we know that there's been a corruption issue. In, in Ukraine, that has been long-standing. I don't know if that re- remotely justifies the Russian invasion. I, I hope you're not saying, "Well, they have they have a they have a 30-year-old democracy that is struggling through corruption." It is, but they've also yes. been fighting a rearguard action on the east. I understand that, but is that anyway justifying a? a and I just want to stick to the point. I don't, so I don't want to get it to the Ukraine. Do you think Canada uh, should spend to, more on,
3: uh, on 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 I'll defense? Ask you one question. Well, yeah. I'll ask you one question. Uh, why? He invades Ukraine now. That he could have done it ten to twenty years ago. Why now? There's something. There's a hidden agenda that you don't know. I don't know. Only these, these politicians know.
1: Okay, there's- I appreciate the call. Yeah, I, I don't know why he did it. I don't. I can't read Putin's mind. I know he thought that. Maybe he thought the West wasn't gonna, you know, he tested it out on Crimea. He's tested it out in Georgia. He thought the West was weak. He did. He thought he, his goal has been to to, def, to divide the West. He saw that maybe Germany was too dependent on on natural gas, so they wouldn't pull the trigger on Nord Stream two. He was wrong. He was wrong, and he was wrong, and he was wrong. And I would say, don't underestimate democracies. Do it at your peril. I hope. Terry, what's up? Hey,
3: Evan. I tell you. Take, take take a look around, eh? Like the uh, money tree is picked bare. Nobody can afford anything right now. How are we supposed to spend like billions on, on like new helicopters, new jets, eh? How are we supposed to do this?
1: Yeah. So Terry, I, first of all, I agree. There's this is always this is always the question, pal. Uh-huh. There's there's no money tree, so we got to make choices. I would Can I give you one answer though? You've allocated over $30 billion to, for frigates and for jet fighters, and we haven't pulled the trigger and actually done it. Our procurement, we've already actually budgeted money that we haven't spent. So the first thing is spend the bloody money that you've budgeted. How's that? Is that fair?
3: Yeah, but what about the helicopters we were supposed to get like years and years ago? Here they are flying 50 year old helicopters that like look, like look like they fly it for an hour, but then they got to service it for like 20.
1: Yeah, that's true. By the way, we did um buy, I, I mean, I I know, listen, that will goes back to the Mulrooney years, but we do actually have the CH-47 Chinook, like we do have some, the Bell 412s, like we do have some, right? So um I agree with that. That's been, look, procurement's been a nightmare. But your question is, where do we get the money? And that's a fair question. And I think people are going to have to figure out what we spend on, because you can't spend on everything. Uh Steve, what's up?
7: Yeah, I think that uh, we've got what, battery-powered submarines that sink. We've got an antique aircraft and ships with more paint than steel. Um, but I think we should increase our spending and have better cooperation with the Americans in our military stance for North America. Because I think one of our greatest blessings in this country is living beside a neighbor that doesn't want to kill us. Yeah, I agree with you. Um... You know, there's so, so many countries in the world, that's not the reality.
1: Can, can I just say in 2017, do you remember Justin Trudeau announced he was going to increase defense spending over 20 years by $62 billion? But they haven't spent a lot of it. That's the big problem,
7: right? He, so, he first also, you got to spend it. He also said he likes the basic dictatorships of China. I mean, our American, you know, having America beside us is a blessing, the largest economy in the world. And we're the only country that can truck goods in there using their language and legal system. We have yeah. advantages in this country we don't take advantage of.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. Well, I mean, that's been that's been one of our great good fortunes. I appreciate that um, at times. Uh, let me do, do I have time for one more? Mike, go for it. You're the last caller.
2: Yeah, we don't need any increased uh, any more wasting of our taxes. We don't need to increase the wasting of our taxes on um, creating war. We need peace. Our country's already into debt. No, thanks. To the globalist agenda, like Trudeau, uh, one of the students of the World Economic Forum, we need peace, not war, and we shouldn't be. That's
1: it. Sure. So, what's the globalist agenda? I can't. I, I'm just. I'm just trying to figure out. You say these things that like people accept them. What's the globalist agenda? I just can you explain to me what you're talking about there?
2: Well, that's a loaded question with only a minute remaining.
1: But is this this like is this this World Economic Forum, and then everyone's part of some great reset? Is this that thing? Because you know you know my thoughts on that like you you have an elect you know we have democratic elections here we you know the, you're voting on these budgets we have budgets we have estimates we have the parliamentary process it's a minority government it's not a what, it, we, have, no,
2: well, what we have here in this country is overcrowding and mismanagement by mis, misleaders misleading us
1: overcrowding overcrowding what like too many people here
2: Charity starts at home. We don't need more people coming here. Economical refugees, economical terrorists. We need to start charity at home.
1: Right. Do you you not think we should take in uh, any Ukrainians then?
2: Start charity at home.
1: Okay. I appreciate the call. Yeah, I disagree. We, We have the capacity, much bigger capacity, to take many more people. We actually have a labor shortage. Just like, again, it's not my view versus yours. I don't understand this great reset theory that he's talking about. I know a lot of you may buy that. You got to show me data. We've got a labor, a worker labor shortage. We actually need workforces. We've got a demographic problem. We've got an aging workforce. And the idea that Canada should not take in the million, any of these million and a half Ukrainian refugees. And look, uh, people always try to shut the door to immigrants. You've been people have been doing that for years. It's wrong in my view for many reasons. Immigrants are an economic plus. To any society, including Canada, my grandparents, of course, uh, immigrants, as m- most of us are. Um, and number two, we're human beings. And, and I, let's just talk. forget the data for a second, just being moral. And I appreciate your comment. You're entitled to it. But when there's a, a million and a half Ukrainians who are fleeing their country because of a dictator, and you're saying shut the door to them, I could never do that. Never. It is time to open the door to Ukrainians.
0: Sorting through the changes, here's Evan Solomon.
1: You know, I always like to end the show on something a little more inspirational. to take our mind off the news. Uh, our old friend Benjamin Alexander was Jamaica's first Olympic alpine skier. He learned to ski in British Columbia at the age of 32. You remember we had him on the program. But he's supposed to join us now. He's got a bit AWOL. hope he hasn't fallen on something. I mean, this guy could barely ski at 32. Couldn't ski. And now he was in the Olympics, and I promised he'd, he'd come back on. But before we get to him, I want to comment on, on our last caller. It really, it really impacted me. Now, now I love the calls we get and I welcome the calls we get. And you know, sometimes I'll tee off on a caller or they'll tee off on me. Fine. But we had a caller, Mike, who, you know, first he peddled the conspiracy theory that there's some kind of globalist agenda running Canada. You know my thoughts on that. There's no, there's no proof of this. This is some screwed up conspiracy theory that Klaus Schwab at the World Economic Forum or whatever controls Canada, forgetting our elections, forgetting we have a minority government, forgetting the 338 members of parliament, forgetting our provinces, forgetting our municipalities, this kind of sense that you don't value our democracy and you believe in some internet dopey conspiracy theory with no proof about an organization that has nothing to do with the globalist agenda is controlling Canada, where you don't actually value a democracy in the face of Ukraine, where their democracy is literally being undermined, killed, slaughtered, and under attack, is that kind of delusional analysis takes for granted what we've got. we got to fight for what we've got. It's not great. It's got to be better. But the last thing he said really drove me crazy. When he said, we we have to, charity begins at home, he said. So close the doors to immigrants. Now, I don't know what he's after there. I'm not going to accuse him of anything because I can't read into his mind. But I specifically asked him, should we close the door, for example, to the Ukrainian refugees, of which there are a million and a half? And he said, yes. And I will just say this before we get to our friend Benjamin Alexander. I think he's on the line now. First of all, as I said to him, the data, immigrants of been critical to building this country. Immigrants are an economic, social, cultural benefit, but more than anything. To imagine looking yourself in the mirror today when they're fleeing the the Russian invasion and saying, you know what my position is? Let's not let any in. Let's let no Ukrainians come to Canada right now. Just like in the war when Mackenzie King, the Canadian prime minister, said none is too many and they turned away the Jews and many other groups, imagine having the kind of heart or lack of to say, no, we should turn away Ukrainians wanting to come here. My God. I mean, sorry, it it throws me into despair. And that's why we've got Benjamin Alexander here, Jamaica's first Olympic alpine skier, because we need a bloody smile on our face. Benjamin, welcome back.
9: How's it going, Emma?
1: I'm pissed off, can you tell?
9: (laughs) <laughs> be in the bonnet it seems like <laughs>
1: uh, well it's yeah well you know yeah being war does that war is it be in the bonnet and a the refugee crisis but I got to tell you um, you were at the Olympics I we were cheering for you Benjamin D- take us back you learned to ski at the age of thirty two you're like an engineer you're a DJ how did it go what happened at the Olympics.
9: The Olympics were absolutely phenomenal. That was a moment that I will keep with me and cherish with me for the rest of my life. For those of you that watched, I appreciate the timing. was a little bit weird. Um, For those of you in Canada... The my race day was the one day of the entire Olympics where they actually had snow, right? Last time last uh, last year that location had less snow than London, England. Um and on the day of my race, there was the biggest dump of snow that they've had in eight years, and they just weren't prepared for it. The conditions were treacherous, visibility was minimal, it was pretty dangerous out there. Um and as you said, I just started skiing six years ago. And so for me this was about the participatory element of the Olympics. I was never going out there for a medal. So I just set my sights on playing a conservative and making sure I finished. 41 athletes crashed.
1: 40, I, now, now, I want people to know, um, I've, I've watched your race. At the halfway point, you were 19 seconds behind the leader, <laughs> and which puts you in 83rd or something, 83rd position. But you're doing it, my man. What was going through your mind? Yeah. I mean, look, there were
9: no delusions of grandeur. You can't have your first race, as I did two years ago, and then be at the Olympics and expect to be anywhere near to these incredible athletes that have been doing this since the age of two and are putting in hundreds, if not a million dollars each year into their advancement, their technology, their equipment, and their development. For me, it was just about breaking new ground and just showing this thing could be done. If I could go from zero to Olympian in six years, then we should get more kids from more diverse backgrounds into winter sports earlier because they're going to be much better than I am. So for me, it was just about hanging on, survival, making it to the end, and, and that was really the
1: Were you, thing. House, like, you were skiing slow, speaking of Benjamin yeah. Alexander, Jamaica's first ever Olympic alpine skier. He learned to ski in British Columbia at the age of 32. Uh, how scared were you or were you like, I'm going slow enough, I just want to make it?
9: Um, you know, the camera hopefully caught my tongue sticking out at a few moments and my arm waving in a couple of the moments. You know, when I pushed out of the gate in that first run, there was a
2: huge
9: snowbank just off of the racing line. And I was having these terrible visions of colliding with the snowbank and cartwheeling down right beside the first ever gate I'd raced in the Olympics. But once I got through a couple of gates, I realized, look, this is really tough. This is a really treacherous course just play the safe game unfortunately lots of my other friends from other small nations thought that we were there to compete but really we're not we're there that show that uh there, there can be diversity in winter sports and yeah i was just hanging on. my legs were gassed halfway through the were they really as, yeah well yeah. what you don't understand like you know as a casual observer not only are you on ice but you've had like 80 50 people go down before you so the course is just beat up and your body is just bouncing over those runs and it really takes a toll i actually went in to see the physio for a little bit of work on my lower back after that first run but like i said i'm 38 years old i'm long in the tooth you know like you know, i shouldn't be out there there should be athletes from jamaica that are in their peak in their prime that are representing the country but no one had ever made it work before so i hope this will be the marker in the sand the line and then, and, and it must forward.
1: be by the way what what is your um What's been the reaction, Benjamin? Because it was great. It's been remarkable.
0: Yeah, incredibly
9: supportive and incredibly positive. Um, I think sometimes when we're watching the best of the best, those people aren't human, right? They've dedicated their entire life 20, 30 years to this one thing and for many people that's unattainable but for the guy that just started skiing six years ago and finished dead last but with a big smile on his face and with a message to share with the world there's there's humanity in that and people can relate with that so the reactions have been incredibly positive.
1: Well I gotta tell you you were my all-time favorite olympic interview i love that you've done it you're a dj an international dj an engineer now jamaica's first olympic alpine skier you learned to ski at 32 you remain my a great inspiration keep going stay in touch friend of the show benjamin alexander you 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 i every time i talk to you i feel better and that's you've inspired (laughs) lots of people around the world my friend keep going uh you're just you're just a magic person thanks benjamin thanks what a great guy Thanks, everybody. Thanks. That put a smile on my face, and I'll see you. I'm still home with the COVID sitch. So I'll see you from home on Power Play tonight, 5 p.m. Eastern on CTV News Channel.